just want to bring that up. Sometimes I think uh, we in churches can get um, overly emphasized on professionalism. And I want you to know that it is significant that our children and our middle age and our older folks all lead from up here. That it not just be pastors and people who are paid, but that it be people who are every day following Jesus Christ. And so before I even kind of get into the scripture, I just want to remind us all of that truth. And with that, brothers and sisters, we are here on this fourth Sunday of Advent. And this morning, we're looking at the Song of Zechariah. And so I'm going to actually split this reading up because it's very lengthy. And so I'm going to split up the whole thing into two different parts. So just to kind of make you aware of that. But the first part will be verses 5 through 25 of the first chapter. And so I invite you to hear these words. Luke writes, In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. And his wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. And once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. And when he did come out, he could not speak to them. And he, they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured 
among my people. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you on this beautiful, crisp morning after having been led in praises to you. We pray, Lord, as we sit here five days before Christmas, that you might quiet our hearts, open our ears to what you might have us to hear. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So Luca likes to paint a scene before getting to the crux of his stories, and yet he, he likes to take as few brushes as possible. He doesn't want to waste a lot of time, but he wants to give us just a sense of context before we dive into the story. And so here, in just three sentences, Luke tells us everything he thinks that we need to know uh, before he begins to tell us what happened. One of those things that he wants us to know is that Zechariah is a priest and that Elizabeth, while not a priest, was raised and is a descendant of the high priest Aaron. In other words, what Luke is trying to tell us there very quickly is the fact that both Zechariah and Elizabeth, since the time they were very young, had been raised in the synagogue, raised in the temple, raised learning and memorizing the stories of the Old Testament of Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Noah. They knew, they understood, they had been raised up being followers of God. And yet, the second thing that Luke wants us to know is that unlike some who are raised up in faith, sometimes raised up in the church, especially those for whom their parents uh, might be clergy or whatnot, they did not rebel against the faith. In fact, we are told they are those who continue to follow the faith. They were righteous. They continued to follow the laws of God, we are told. They continued to worship. They continued to give, my guess is. They continued to serve in many different ways. And then thirdly, Luke wants us to know this, and this is a tip-off to what is going to be the crux of our story, which is that they had no children. That though they had desired, it seems, to have children, none had come. That though they had prayed again and again and again, that no children had yet been birthed. And as you can imagine, in that time and place, this meant not only the fact that they were going to be disappointed, not only the fact that they would be heartbroken over this child that they had hoped to have, but in that time and place, that there also would have been a stigma behind them, that, that something must be wrong with them, that perhaps they weren't actually following God. And even if, even, even if they knew that they were, that others might be thinking that Zechariah and Elizabeth had sinned in some way, and that this was why Elizabeth was never able to get pregnant. And, and, and even for Zechariah and Elizabeth, they must have been wondering, what's wrong with us? Why has God forgotten us? Why have we not been blessed with a child when we have prayed for this again and again and again? 
And yet, to their credit, of course, Zechariah and Elizabeth are still faithful. They continue to worship and do what God has wanted them to do. This is what we see going on in this particular story. Zechariah is a part of a priestly group. There would have been 24 of them, and each of them would have gone twice a year for one week to look after and to worship in the temple. And so Zechariah is there. He's doing what he's done twice a year for as long as he can remember. Remember, he's an older gentleman, so he's been doing it for quite some time. But this time, something is different. Finally, he is actually selected to go inside the sanctuary, something that usually only happened once in a lifetime. He's able to go and to offer incense. And so you can imagine if Zechariah had been around so long, he's been waiting for this. And now finally his chance has come. So my guess is he did what probably most of us would do. He, he went to talk to the other guys who had already been in there. Tell me, what, what, what's it like inside of there? And, and what should I expect? And, and what should I not expect? And what am I, exactly am I supposed to do? And are there any surprises or anything I should know before I jump into the sanctuary? And I'm sure that they had given him great wisdom. And there they were, we're told, they're probably surrounding the outside of the sanctuary praying as finally Elizabeth go, or excuse me, Zechariah goes inside. And he walks in and he says, okay, this is great. This is exactly just everything is there. It's just as they told, what is that? And there at the right side of the table, we're told there is an angel, right? And can't you imagine Zachariah's like, well, nobody told me about the angel, right? Is this some kind of surprise? Is this some kind of joke? You know, Jimmy, is that really you over there? What, what is this, right? He, he doesn't know. And all of a sudden, though, clearly he realizes that this is not normal and that something to him at least at first, horrible is happening because we're told that he is scared, that he is terrified. And the angel says what angels always seem to say, which is, guys, listen, don't be afraid, right? Easy for angels to say, right? Don't be afraid. I want you to know, Zechariah, that your prayers have finally been answered. You're going to have a son, and his name is going to be John, and he's going to do remarkable things for the kingdom. To which Zechariah says, right. And I love Zechariah. He's clearly been married for a while. Because do you hear how he coins things? What he says to the angel is, you've got to understand, Mr. Angel, I'm old, and my wife How do we say this? She's getting on in years, he says. And all of a sudden, if I was a this was a movie, all of a sudden everything would go dark. And there would be this great bright light that would come upon Gabriel. Because Gabriel sits there and he says, I am Gabriel. And we are in the presence of God. And these things that I have told you, they will come true. But because you did not believe them, you will be mute. You will not be able to speak until these things occur. And before Zechariah could say anything, he couldn't say anything. 
And so we're told that after this, he goes outside the sanctuary. And in the first ever recorded game of charades, right? I don't know how you do that. Sounds like angel. I don't know, mangel. I don't even know. There's no rhyming word. Finally, he has to convey through motion what exactly had happened. That there was an angel, that he had had a vision. And we're told that he goes back home. And Elizabeth is pregnant, and we begin to see that everything that that the angel had told Zechariah is beginning to become true. Now, this is a, a remarkable story, it seems to me, and one that I think is especially poignant for those of us who are kind of regular churchgoers, if you will. There are some parts of Scripture that are oftentimes perhaps best or geared towards an audience of people who, who maybe aren't followers of God. But this particular story, it seems to me, is one that is particularly apt for those of us who go to church with some regularity, who are a part of a faith community. And the reasoning behind that is because this is a great illustration of something we perhaps do not oftentimes think about which is a distinction between being faithful, which is a good thing, and being faithful with expectancy that God is still alive and is desirous of doing something in your life. The distinction between being faithful simply and being faithful with expectancy Think about Zechariah. He is righteous, we are told. He is worshiping. He is a good guy. In fact, you get the idea that if Zechariah had literally been scared to death, that that day he would have gone to the Lord and the Lord would have said, well done, my good and faithful servant. However, what Zechariah was not able to do was to be able to worship and to experience God and to genuinely believe that God might do something remarkable in his life. And because of that, he missed out on the joy and the delight of what it means to be a follower of God. I have told you all many times now about kind of my own upbringing in the Pentecostal church. And and there are some things that I think were great about it. And there are some things which I think are less than great about it. But one of the things, whether good or for ill, I think for good, that helped me when I was being formed as a youngster was that there was always, as I've probably said before, a sense that at any moment God could actually break out. That at any moment you could actually experience a move of God. You could actually see God at work. That at any moment, wherever you are, whether you're worshiping, whether you're going to school, whether you're going to work, that the Spirit could move in some way. Now, there were some times when that was exhausting, right? I mean, sometimes when a bush moves, it's just wind. It's not God, right? Okay, good. Some of you are still Pentecostal. That's good. But what it did beyond the shadow of a doubt is it made us always alert, Always looking, always expecting that the Lord could work. And then I became Presbyterian. 
And there are many great things about being a part of a faith tradition that is more intellectual, that is more thoughtful, right, in its strain of the Christian church. And I was able to, over the last decade or so, I've been able to serve alongside some great Christ followers, people who were regular worshipers, people who were generous, people who served, people who loved God and neighbor, people much like Zechariah. And yet one of the things that surprised me, especially at the beginning of my time within this particular strain of faith, was how often I thought, you know what, if God actually showed up right now, I think most of these people would be gobsmacked. I think they would not know what to say. I think they would say, what, what are you doing here? Jimmy, is that you dressed up as Jesus again? What's going on? There is no real sense, oftentimes, it seems to me, of actual expectation that the Lord might actually change things, that Jesus might actually do something, like he might actually answer one of those prayers through which you have been praying. And I don't think it's just in the Presbyterian world. I have a feeling there are many, many churches for whom the prevailing sentiment is that while we believe that God has done things in the past, while we believe that God does things up there, we are not fully convinced and do not fully believe that God could actually and does actually continue to work here and now every day in our lives. And there are many reasons for that. Sometimes it's because we've prayed and prayed and we've never experienced any results, at least as we would like to see them. Sometimes it's because we don't want to get our hopes up and be disappointed. Sometimes it's because we're just old and getting tired. But whatever, that wasn't a joke, but sometimes maybe it is. In other words, to bring this back to kind of Advent language, there are times, right, we've talked about what Advent is, where one part of it is, is being honest about the struggles that we are in, honest about the difficult situations, not sugarcoating them, not acting as if everything is great, being honest about it, but in the midst of that, remaining hopeful that God can do anything. And Zechariah, like many of us, it seems to me, had forgotten the second part. He was well aware of his age. He was well aware of the disappointment that they had not yet had a child. But he had forgotten that there is always hope. And because of that, he was struck mute. And so the question is, What does Zechariah learn from being silent for nine months? What does Zechariah learn from this? As he sits there and as he watches the world around him. What does Zechariah learn as he sits there and he stares at the stomach of his wife and he sees it beginning to grow? What what does Zechariah learn as he sits there and he listens to Elizabeth and then remember for three months to Mary as they go back and forth praising God for what they are seeing happening around them? What does Zechariah learn after being silent for nine months? Well, I'm glad that you asked because I want you to hear what Zechariah has learned. Listen to these words from Luke. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. 
And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives have this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all of their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. And all who heard them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy after nine months of silence. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us, that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And listen to this. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, by the tender mercy of our God. The dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. What does nine months of silence get you? In the case of Zechariah, it created within him a song. Not just any song. Because this song, it seems to me, reveals what changed in Zechariah over those nine months. It begins, of course, with simply talking about the ways in which God has been with Israel, the ways in which God has shown Israel mercy, the ways in which God has rescued them from their enemies. But that's a part of the song that Zechariah could have sung before the silence. But after the silence, he is able to look at his son. And let me remind you of what babies are like. It's very fresh in my mind. An eight-day-old baby can eat, can sleep, can go to the bathroom, and can cry. Eat, sleep, go to the bathroom, cry. Eat, sleep, go to the bathroom, cry. Do you have the image? And he is able to look at this child who has done nothing for whom anything could happen, who is remarkably vulnerable, and he is able to look at this child and to believe. 
Because he says to him, you will do remarkable things for God's kingdom. Nine months before that, he had not been able to believe, A, that he would have a child, or B, even that this child could do remarkable things for God. Nine months before, he believed that God was done with him, that though God may have done things in the past, though God may have done things all around, that there was no way that God was going to do something for him. And now, after nine months and eight days of silence, all of a sudden, he finally, begins to become expectant. He finally begins to believe that God might even be able to work through him. And he's able to see something well before it happens. It's easy for us to look at John the Baptist and say, oh, look at everything he did. He's able to look at this thing in the midst of continuing to be suppressed by the Romans, in the midst of everything else, and say, this child is going to help change the world. Nine months of silence later, all of a sudden, Zechariah begins to be expectant. I want you to know that I have been blessed, as many of you have, to be able to work with faithful Christians, and it's wonderful. I love working with faithful Christians, but I want you to know it pales in comparison to working with faithful Christians who are expecting that God could move in their lives and in the lives of their congregation at any moment. Those are a people who are excited. Those are a people who know that there could be a surprise. Those are a people who whenever they set out, they don't just see everything that could go wrong. They see the different ways in which Jesus could be born anew in whatever it is that they are doing. It is an Advent people, as we've been talking about over these last few weeks, who are both aware of the reality, but who say, I don't care what reality we are in, we will never lose hope. It's the Advent people, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, who though they were in exile, believed that God could actually send them home. It's an Advent people who though perhaps, as we talked about last week, there may have been a, a woman who continued to be suppressed, who continued to be in poverty, and who wasn't married, and who was pregnant, and who was on her way to Bethlehem, who still believed that perhaps God could use even all of this. A people of Advent are a people like Zechariah, who can continue to believe, who can finally now begin to believe that even though he was old and even though he was looking at this young, incredibly undeveloped child who could only, let me remind you, eat and sleep and go to the bathroom and especially cry. That even though that's what he was looking at, he could believe that God could do something remarkable in him. It seemed to me as I was thinking about it this week that it's very much like a congregation, much like ZPC, who over the last several years has kind of had its own Advent time, if you will, a time when it kind of struggled, a time when perhaps someone said it was in the wilderness, and perhaps even as some have said to me, there was a question as to whether or not it would actually survive. And yet what Satan didn't realize is amongst that group, there are a group of people who said we will not give up hope. We will not fail to start believing, to continue to believe that God is not yet done with us. 
that we believe that just as God has done in the past, that God can work here. And while we're thankful for the ways that God is working all around us, we know that God is not yet done here. And what I want you to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that if we are going to continue to do what God wants us to do, that we have to be a people who are faithful by all means, but we also have to be a people who are faithful with expectancy and who genuinely believe that Jesus continues to do new things and longs to show up again and again and again. But here's what I want you to know. It will not just happen. This is premarital counseling 101. And one of the things I always tell the people who are about to get married is this. We go through and we say, what are your goals? And, and what would you like to, to see happen? And, 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 and in 20 years, you know, what would you like to, as you look at your spouse? What do you, you know, what do you want your relationship to be like? And they love doing that. They love talking about the goals. It's a great time. But the real crux of the question is this. What are you willing to do in order to get there? And we can sit here week after week, and I can tell you we have to be a people who expect God to work in our lives. And I can say it every single Sunday, but nothing will happen until we are willing to actually do what it takes to get there. And that's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. That those times when we're struggling... When the times, as we've talked about two weeks ago, with the refugees and we're seeing terrorism, and it's so easy for us to get bogged down, that our call in those moments is to sing the song. What's the song that we sing? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That in those times when it is a struggle to live with expectancy, that we begin to sing to ourselves, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Or last week, we talked about the fact that if you're struggling with believing that God really wants to work, what should you look for? Nice. A baby bump. Look around you. Find places where God is at work. Find people for whom God is at work in their lives. Because guess what? If God is at work in their lives, it means that God can be at work in your life. And then this week, the practice of silence. Silence is a great practice for us to be reminded that God continues to be at work. You see, it is so easy for us when we get overwhelmed by everything that we're going through, by the struggles of the world, by the struggles in our own lives, by the struggles in wherever it is, to get so wrapped up in that and the noise of that that we forget who is in control. And so silence is a way for us to be reminded I don't know how many times I hear during every Christmas season, during every Advent, during every December, people say, oh, it's just, it's so noisy. There's just so much going on. We hardly have time to even just kind of focus. And I think to myself, well, I think a lot of things to myself when I hear that. But the one thing I'll share with you that I think to myself is this. Whose fault is that? And what can we do? We can step away. We can step away at least for a time, at least for a space. 
And so here's what I want you to know. We have five days until Christmas. And I want you, if you have a smartphone or if you have a watch with an alarm, I want you to take it out right now. Some of you have been working on it the whole sermon, so you can just sit there. It is 9.58 right now. Okay? But beyond thinking about the fact that, yes, we are going to go late today, I want you to set your alarm for 9.58. Rob, did you do it already? He's faking it. Oh, he's turning it on. Great job. You turned it off. Thank you, Rob. And I want you to set that alarm. And if you happen to have something tomorrow at 9.58, that's fine. When your alarm goes off, you just make sure you think, when do I have space for the rest of the day or when will I make space? And I want you to take nine minutes from 9.58 until 10.07. Yes, that's right. Nine minutes, and I want you to turn off the Christmas music. I want you to close your mouth. I want you to close the door. I want there to be silence, at least as much silence as you can have for nine minutes. If Zechariah did it for nine months, we can do it for nine minutes over the next five days. And I want you, good, that's the noise of the phones coming on, that's okay. And I want you to take those nine minutes, and I want you to do two things. One of them is to ask, how in this last year have I seen Jesus? Where have I seen Jesus? And if you need to write it down to be helpful, then write it down over during those nine minutes. Where have I seen this God? Where have I I seen God at work? And then secondly, to ask yourself the hard question of whether or not you genuinely expect to see God in your life and in this church in this next year. Do you really believe? Are you faithful or are you faithful with expectancy? And I want you to know then at 9.58 that those who are gathered around here on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, some of them will be in Indianapolis, some of them will be across the country, some of them may be across the globe by come Friday. I want you to know that they are your Advent people and that all of you for these nine minutes are sitting there and are hoping and praying to become more expectant. Because my hope and prayers, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that as we do that, we continue to become more and more an Advent people. As we do that, we continue to sing the Advent songs. And as we do that, we become more and more aware that though we may be silent, that God is not silent. That God continues to have things to say to this world through us. That we might learn anew, having gone through this Advent season, of what it means that Jesus has been born and what it means that he will come again. May we be a faithful people, but may we do so with an expectancy that God is not done with us. May it be so. Amen.